0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? My, my, what a great group. We got a huge student section over here. Hey, are you a guest with us over here, Ian? Ian, welcome back. Ian and Reeves and Matt and Angie Johnson are back. They are members who are on mission uh, where are they? Are the rest of them here, or did they all take off? They're at McDonald's. Is that where they went? Oh, there they are. There we are. I see Reeves. And there's Mom and Dad. Okay, I just thought maybe y'all were like, Look, we're back in the States. We're going to McDonald's. Yeah, date night. Yeah. Well, welcome home. We're, whatever this is, you're always home to us, but I understand you've got to make a new home, so you got two homes now. It's good to see everybody, and um, it's good to have everybody as we begin our study in Genesis. We're, uh, we're about three weeks in. And uh, as I was preparing this morning, looking at this text, I've been praying all week, Lord... Give me a shape to this what is the, what is the one major implication uh, from this text that you want me to go and and where the Lord kind of led me finally this morning um, was remind me of the days that when I was beginning my career, I, uh, I spent uh, eight, eight years in the business world before going into the ministry, the full time vocational ministry. And I was a CPA and I was a CFP, and, and progress was going well. I, I, I was riding the corporate ladder, climbing that ladder. But there was one nagging problem. Every morning, I, I had this, I was haunted by this sense of a search for significance. I just felt like, it, it wasn't true, but, but in my life, the way I felt in, in, in that stage was every day I was like, okay, there's gotta be more to it than this, than just making money. Uh, buying some nice things, taking a nice trip. Back then, Dan and I didn't have kids yet, so we, we got to travel. And yeah, that was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And I look forward to those days again. But it, it's, uh, it's a nice thing to do. But ultimately, for me, it was, there wasn't, uh, it was like, okay, there's got to be more than this. I mean, you just wake up, make money, buy some things, put a little for retirement, and repeat. I mean, it just has to be something more to life than this. And now that led me down a journey that for me, it ultimately ended up in the full-time vocational ministry. Now, clearly we know that that's not where it ends for everybody, that not everybody ends up in the full-time vocational ministry, but what, what I hope that you see today in this text as we see in Genesis, these incredible foundational passages to all of life, that you see where... Every single life is extraordinarily significant, that your life is significant. That's what we focused on last week as the crowning creation, that human life is, has sanctity and dignity, and it's significant. But what I want you to see is it's not found in what you do. It's not found in comparing yourself to others. It's not found in relatively In relation to other people, when you look at Instagram or Facebook, where everybody puts their best self forward, you don't measure yourself and say, okay, well, I'm insignificant because of that. But what I want you to see is your significance is also not found in yourself. It's not thinking better of yourself and more highly of yourself. What we're going to see today is your significance is found in Christ. It's in God, in God's design And we began to see that last week. And so today we're going to continue to look. We're going to double back on where we were last week. And we're going to come again into chapter 2 where the author re-examines the creation of man account. And it's just a different camera angle lens on the same event where God created man. But what we see is our significance is wrapped up in What God says in verse 26 of chapter 1. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so what we see is we bear the image of God. That you are a reflection of God. We think about images when we think about looking in a picture or a photograph or a mirror. Mirrors reflect images. And we are designed by God with a purpose in mind. That the very reason that you exist on this earth, the very reason that you go to that school or you go to your workplace or that you raise those children, the very reason God has you here is for an extraordinarily significant purpose. You bear the image of God. This God that we've been getting to know, because that's what Genesis is, it's introducing us to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God who takes on flesh and the person that we know as Jesus. The God, He is our God if we are in Christ by faith and we're getting to know our God. He is this creator of the universe that by His very breath, He gave life. To man, by his very word, he spoke and trees came into existence. He spoke and universes and he spoke and universe and galaxies came into existence and the sun, the moon, the stars, all these incredible things that we're seeing. That God is made visible to others through you because you bear his image, you reflect his glory. That is not insignificant. And, and when we think of it that way, when any of us look at our, our social media accounts and we feel insignificant, God says, how dare you say my image bearer is insignificant? Or if you are extraordinarily prideful and you look at it, your social media and you go, wow, I am more significant than others. He says, how dare you look at others as insignificant? They are image bearers of God. And so what we're going to see today is that's God's will for your life. That's God's purpose for your life, is to bring glory to God, to bear the image of God who is glorious. Several athletes are in our church, and I won't name any names, but several of them I'm in contact regularly with them and we've kind of got this thing going that I would encourage everyone to take on is whether it's on a wristband or it's on something else, TGBTG. To God be the glory. I I picture mothers changing poopy diapers with a wristband to God be the glory because we all need that reminder whether it's because I was the hero of last night's game Some of you know who I'm talking about. Or whether I was not playing the role I wanted to play on the team. Or whether I was changing a poopy diaper or wiping a boogie nose. We need reminders on our wristbands that says TGBTG. To God be the glory in all things, right? That's why we exist, is to bring Glory to God. Lord, as we look at this text, would you bring glory to yourself? Would you bring fame to your name through us? And would you bless us with the realization that there is no one insignificant. There is no insignificant role. There is no insignificant job. There is meaning and significant and purpose infused into everyone who acknowledges Jesus as their Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's pick up where we left off last week, kind of backtrack into verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here we see God, the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit says, let us make man in our image And so we are mirrors imaging forth God's glory, God's image. We make known God. We are his ambassadors, as New Testament language says. And here we see it happens in everyday life. Look at verse 26. And let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Here we see we are to reflect God's glory as we carry out our dominion over earth. What does that mean, as we subdue the earth? Well, that means as an architect brings a beautiful creation onto paper, as a mathematician brings forth something that makes sense out of random numbers, out as, as an engineer designs a structure, an interstate or a bridge that can hold unbelievable amounts of weight, as a musician takes random notes of chaos and brings them into order to produce a beautiful work of art, as an artist takes random colors that are just spattered and brings them into a glorious design of beauty and creation whether as a mother brings order to the home as a father does their job as a mother does her job as we subdue the earth we image forth god as we create we're doing what we see god doing in genesis 1 as we do all these things we are showing people this is what god is like God is good, God is glorious, God is beautiful, God is loving, God is love, God creates, God brings order. And so as we subdue the earth, as we fulfill our calling, wherever our role is at this point, there is no insignificant person and there is no insignificant job. As you study for an exam for a class that is not in your major, and you think, what does this have to do with life? There is no insignificant role. As an accountant, when I used to sit in stacks of numbers, and if you know me, you can imagine this is probably the best way. If you want to torture me, ask me to do this. Sit me in a small room, say, sit still, and look at all these papers for a number. I needed to know that there is no insignificant task. Everything you do is done to show someone and to reflect who God is. And that is eternally, extraordinarily significant. And so as we fulfill this mandate of dominion over the earth, we show in our own actions God has ultimate dominion over the earth. He spoke it into existence and we are his vice regents reigning and ruling over creation And we are carrying out his calling on our lives. Whether it's in a pulpit or in a a bathroom at your house with your children. Or whether it's here or there. God is saying, do it in a way that makes much of my glory. And so we carry it out as we do our daily responsibilities. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. What do you mean his image? In the image of God, he created him. What do you mean? Male and female, he created them. So here we see that our gender-specific roles bring glory to God. The way we relate to each other bring glory to God. Next week, we're going to take a whole sermon on marriage and how marriage relates to this idea of being called to bring glory to God. And it includes all relationships, how we relate to one another, how we get along, how we treat one another, how we treat others. We should image forth the glory of God and show forth others how he relates to us and how he treats us. And then in verse 28, God blessed them. This is a blessing. This is not a command. When it says, God says, be fruitful and multiply, the mood of blessing. So here we see God blesses with children and with a a heritage of family. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so as God blesses with children, if he so chooses to bless you with children, then that is part of your missional mandate to make disciples in your own home, to model for them a picture of who God is, to to teach them the word of God that explains who he is, that you disciple your children. It's not a menial, insignificant task. It is extraordinarily significant. And then the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, as you are going, make disciples of all the earth. And we see that's exactly the picture here. As you go about doing this, wherever God leads you through very practical, seemingly practical, normal means, a uh, job opportunity here, or in some countries it's through persecution. He forces people there, and God moves us here and there, but His Whole design, his whole will, his whole purpose, the grand scheme, the grand narrative, the final picture is being presented here remember in our series about the Bible that the story of the Bible is God redeeming and restoring his people and his planet in the picture that we see of what it's going to look like is in this first Adamic covenant with Adam we see a picture of what will be one day when Christ returns that his death on the cross was bringing about the first stage of this redeeming a people and a planet to himself that you will see this picture once again. And so God's ultimate end goal is an earth filled with his glory. And how will the earth be filled with his glory? Will it be just some weird scientific glory cloud? No, it will be people on this earth who live in a way that reflect him perfectly. That you will reflect his glory you will be a part of the reflection of his glory on the new heavens and a new earth eternally. And the way that you live and the way that you operate now is training ground for that day. And so all who trust in Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, will have an eternal place on this paradise that will be recreated and it will be an eternal place of imaging forth perfectly the glory of God. That's what God's doing. And so as you go about your life, nothing is insignificant. Every bit of it is infused with significant glory weight. Washing dishes, as the Puritans would say, is Practice the presence of God as we carry out this mandate to image forth the glory of God. Driving a hammer on a construction site is to the glory of God. Changing diapers, to the glory of God. Studying for exams, to the glory of God. Playing a sport, to the glory of God. Counting numbers to the glory of God. All things to the glory of God are significant. So how do we do all of this? What does this mean to to do this in a way that brings glory to God? Well, let's get transition down to chapter 2, verses 5 and following. In chapter 5 and following... Uh, it takes some interpretation, so there's different, different opinions about what it is, but the one that makes most sense to me is you have a return to the scene where God created, but now you have a, a camera angle lens, if you think of a movie, the camera angle's at a different angle now, and now there's a different focus, and the focus now is on some things before the fall of man in chapter 3. And so what this creates is an idyllic scene, which is what the word Eden means, is this ideal scene of what god's perfect will is before sin affected it and so in verse five we're going to see three mentions of three a mention of three things that will exist before the fall but change after the fall Let's see if I can make sense of this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. It certainly sounds like some drought condition and there's no bushes. And you go, well, when was this? But as I've kind of challenged you on some things, I think the Hebrew can also say something different. I think I want to argue for this for you. I think you'll see it. Now, it requires interpretation, but John Selhammer says that the focus here is on the description of those parts of the land that were to be directly affected by the fall. So three things are mentioned here specifically because they are going to be mentioned again after the fall. Bushes, rain, and man. Here before sin we're told there's no certain little bushes. In chapter 3, after sin, we're going to be told that there are thorns and thistles in the land. So, I'm arguing before sin, the earth did not have these thorn bushes and these thistles. But after sin, it says now there will be thorns and thistles in the ground. So, even the earth was corrupted by sin. Also, here before sin, we are told that God had not caused it to rain. Later after sin, that exact same phrasing is used in the flood narrative to say God caused it to rain for 40 days as punishment or as judgment against sin. Here, before sin, we are told there is no man to work the ground. After sin, in chapter 3, we are told there will be man to work the ground by the sweat of his face. And we all go, that's why work is frustrating. So the description here is setting us up to say, before sin entered the world, this idyllic scene existed. Now, what is the idyllic scene? Well, we have in verses 7 through 9 the description of that idyllic scene. And it continues from chapter 1 where we said, God said it was good. God created this, it was good. He created this, and he declared it good. And then we get to this verse 6. And a mist or a stream was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So in this idyllic scene of the, the earth, this piece of land that God created before sin... A land, the land has a stream coming up, watering the ground for man. And then we see in verse 7 again the record of God forming man from the ground. And then God graciously, powerfully gives life into man, breathes into his nostril the breath of life as his crowning creation. We focused on man last week, we're focusing on the land this week. And so the man became a living creature, but then. On the land, look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So Eden is the land. And in the east of Eden, there's this garden that God himself planted the garden. So God is planting the garden. And then he put man whom God formed into the garden. The Hebrew for Eden means delight. And so this whole scene evokes an idyllic perfection in your mind that you should picture the most glorious garden on a glorious land where the water is is streaming and the water is is watering the the land so that it's lush and green and fruitful and beautiful and God is caring for it all it's all the work of God but it it's the Lord God who's doing this. The Lord God who saw what was good for man in verse 1. The Lord God who declared what was good and prepares what is good. And man is his crowning creation. And now he's created this beautiful scene, this beautiful idyllic garden. And he nestles them into the garden. And it says in verse 9, continuing And out of the ground it is the Lord God who made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And good for food. So, God is the one planting the garden. God is the one bringing forth the trees. God is the one feeding humanity and giving him this beautiful, scenic, beautiful paradise. God is working for man. That's insane. Every other creation account that is made up by man says that God is this capricious God or gods and man must appease the gods and serve God. Our God is serving us. The crowning of his creation. He is blessing us. He is planting. He is tilling. He is watering. He is raising up all that we need. And in the midst, you have the tree of life. God is sustaining life. God is the very source of life and God is the one sustaining life. And then there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? That means God is providing for us, for humanity, the knowledge of what is good for us and what is not good for us. God is blessing and blessing and protecting from evil, setting boundaries away from evil. God is is the source of wisdom. He's written the laws of his heart on 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 Adam's heart. He has written it on them so they know, don't go here, don't go there. All they have to do is just trust God and enjoy his blessings. And enjoy this glorious paradise. God is providing it all for them. And then look at verses 10 through 14. There's the mention of the rivers. The four rivers. Tigris, Euphrates and two other rivers. And by the way. Those Tigris and Euphrates. Mention the boundaries of the promised land. So again I believe. My opinion is that this. Land that has been created is the promised land. And it's this lush, beautiful promised land. And in the east portion of this promised land, there's this extraordinarily beautiful garden-like scene. And he mentions in this description of the rivers, he keeps mentioning the gold and the jewels. The land that is flowing through. And there's gold in this land. And then there's jewels in this land. And you, you go, what is that? Well, if you go to Exodus 25 through 27, there's a description of the tabernacle. And it's very similar language. And commentaries all over the place notice that the language describing this garden scene is very similar to the language describing the tabernacle scene. And it's very similar to, the land, uh, to Haggai's language describing the new temple with the gold and the jewels. And what they conclude is this is an evidence or a way to say the glory of God himself was there. And so the greatest blessing of all is this scene where man is being cared for And placed here is that God himself and his glory is there. And man is just there to reflect the glory of God and to enjoy the presence of God. And it becomes a worship scene, a priestly scene as we continue to study because it says in verse 15. And here's the pinnacle of the the passage. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep And that word is very subtle, the word put in Hebrew. There's two Hebrew words for put. The first one is just put this on the table. Very common use of the word. That was used in verse 8. But here, the author changes the word. Very easy. If you're reading it, you notice, whoa, something's different here. It's dedicate. It's nestled it's nestle with safety and rest and to dedicate before the Lord. It's the same word used in the priestly passages that we'll read later where they are dedicated in the presence of the Lord and their garments are to be dedicated to the Lord. And that it's the same language used for Israel and the promised land. They are nestled in to the promised land and given safety and protection. They are given Rest. And so the scene here is a very familiar scene. God is nestling His people into His presence and giving them safety and rest where all they have to do is trust Him, enjoy His blessings, to soak it in. And as they do, they reflect His goodness and His glory to the nations around him. And as they do this, the nations would see his glory and come streaming in to know that God. And they're created to work and to keep. In the Hebrew, it says work and keep. And you say, what are we to work and keep? Is my whole purpose in life just to to dig the ground and cultivate the garden No, the work and to keep has to be defined by the context. What does the very next verse say, verse 16? Then the Lord God commanded. The first mention of God commanding. And so the work and the keep is the same language of keep the commandments. And so the whole purpose of man is to be in the presence of God. Imaging forth his glory. Working in the sense of of harvesting the glorious produce of God's labors. And at this point, it's not by the frustrations of your face. But it is a glorious enjoyment of just picking the fruit, harvesting it taking it, enjoying it, handing it to your family and letting them enjoy it. It's not a frustrating scene. It's a bringing dominion over the the garden to the glory of God. But God's done all the heavy lifting for our good. And all we have to do, the one thing he says, is you want to know the glorious command of God in your life, the glorious will of God for your life. You want to experience paradise, he says, just do one thing, trust me, and obey me, just trust me, know how good I am, I created you, I'm blessing you, I'm watering your garden that I built for you, I'm protecting you. I'm giving you safety. I'm making the path of life so clear. Just know that I know what's best for you. There's one thing, and the law comes in the form of do's and don'ts. Do eat all of the trees. Enjoy all that I've created for you. Enjoy it all. As long as you don't do one thing. Just don't eat that one tree. And what's that one tree called? The knowledge of good and evil. Don't try to decide for yourself. Trust me, I know what's best for you. Don't disobey me. And as long as you do that, it's all yours. In chapter 3, we're going to get to the sin. that The, the, the tragedy of the sin is not so much presented as Mean spirited rebellion, it's presented as foolish. Why would I not trust God? Look what He's doing for you. And so God has placed you on this planet for a purpose. Whether it's a sport or a classroom or a, in your home with your family or out there in the workplace or in your community. He wants you to do one thing, glorify Him. And that's not some weird nebulous glory cloud. That's you simply trusting Him enough that you do what He says. You do what He says, when He says it, where He says it, how He says it, and why He says it, and you depend on His help to do it. And that's how you glorify God. And in doing that, you discover the joy of all God's blessings. And it's a taste of what's to come. It's a training ground of what's to come. An eternal existence of creating and designing and playing and enjoying to the glory of God on a recreated new heavens and a new earth. So, I want to leave you with one question today. Where do you need to start trusting God? Because when we don't obey, it's because we're not trusting something. It's that simple, it's not complicated. What's my purpose in life? It's to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. They ought to write a song. So, it's not complicated. But the path of enjoying the glorious gift of God's blessings and purposes and significance and meaning is to simply trust God enough to say, I'm going to do what he says, where he says, when he says, why he says, and how he says by his enablement. Where do you need to start trusting God so that you'll start obeying him? and reflecting his glory. Father God, would you help us this morning? And most importantly, Lord, would anyone, I know there are people here who don't have a personal relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that more than anything, knowing how to be in the presence of God post-sin, after the fall, is only possible because, again, of your grace and your goodness, and that is... You made the way possible through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with God because of your sin, God is so good he even made a way for that. And he came into this earth. He took on flesh. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross to take the penalty that you and I deserve for sin. And he says, trust me. Trust me enough to obey me. And to obey me in this sense means to trust that Jesus forgives you of your sin and makes you right with God. So trust him today. Begin a relationship of trust with God through faith in Jesus Christ for the first time and he wipes your sins out. He does away with your sin. He no longer condemns you of sin. He no longer holds it against you. He declares you righteous. He declares you innocent. He declares you perfect. He calls you a saint and he makes you a priest in his presence. A kingdom of priests is what he's creating by the blood of Jesus Christ. So trust him today. And for those who have been walking with Jesus and have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, what is he calling you to do today? What are you not obeying? And underneath that is a lack of trust. What, where are you not faithing him? Where are you not trusting him? What is it that you don't believe about God that is holding you back from obeying him in an area of your life and that is robbing him of glory and that is darkening the mirror that keeps you from imaging forth the glory of God. He's telling you today, trust me, look at me, trust me, I'm good. May we sing this beautiful song written by someone that just makes us think about all that we see about God and his glorious creation. And let it be a reminder of his goodness.